in Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you so much, Tara. Amen. That's good news. Kingdom is here. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. If you normally don't open your Bible, let me really encourage you to do so because there's going to be verses I won't have uh, with. And we're going to be moving quickly in a couple of areas. And I just want to point out some verses, maybe something you'd want to circle and, and go back to on your own. If this is your first time with us or maybe the first time in a long time, we are taking a deep dive into the Ten Commandments to see that they're far more than just a set of rules to live by, but it is a marriage covenant between Yahweh the groom and Israel, the bride in the Old Testament, and the church, uh, the bride in the New Testament. And just like a bride and groom desire to be with one another, uh, Yahweh says over and over, I have saved you, I have delivered you from Egypt, Because I want to be your God, I want you to be my people, and I'm going to take you to a place that I have prepared for you. I mean, it's just so beautiful when you think about all of this. And and last week, if you were with us, we saw multiple times that after the covenant was given, uh, the people of Israel said, yes, all that Yahweh has said, we will do. Yes, all that Yahweh has said, we will do. And this covenant was, was spoken. The vows had been given by Israel and by Yahweh. And if if our understanding is correct, our approach to the text of Exodus chapters 19 and 20, if we really understood it, we would realize we're witnessing a wedding ceremony. Just as we might visit and, and gather with a group of people where a bride and groom would exchange vows, that's what we get to read in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And and like just at the end, just like at the end of a wedding, at the end of Exodus 20, everything is great. Everything is good. But then again, if you were with us last week, we saw that Yahweh comes and says, there will be a time of testing. There was two tests we looked at last week, a test that was taking place at the bottom of the mountain where Israel failed and turned to a golden calf, and a, a testing that was taking place at the top of a mountain where Moses was given a chance to be delivered from his suffering and his struggles And Yahweh said, I'll start all over with you. And he said, no, your glory is far more important than my comfort. And I I don't have time to rehearse everything. I would love to, but um, before we get into new material, I feel like the Lord is just, just making this so clear. Wanting to remind me and remind all of us that, you know, it's often the most difficult and trying times of our lives that God uses to shape us most like Jesus. I mean, let's be honest, right? So we think of the life of Jesus. Jesus walked on water. He healed the sick. He fed the multitudes. He even even raised the dead. All these victorious things Christ does. But when we think of one symbol of that victorious king, what do we point to? The place of his greatest suffering. I, I mean, let's be honest. It is at the cross where the one who walked on water was left alone by those closest to him. Where the one who raised the dead was actually, his life was taken from him. Where the one who stepped in and brought healing to people where he was rejected by his own. That cross is the symbol of suffering, but it's the symbol of our king. I think for many of us, we, we might prefer the victorious experience like Jesus walking on the water. 
But if we're truly following our king, we should expect the sacrificial experience of bearing a cross. We want the water walking. We don't want that walk up to Calvary. But if we're following our king, that's where he's going to take us. But the beauty, the beauty of our king is that it is in the times of our greatest testing that we most deeply feel his love and most clearly witness his working in our life. Like just this week, just as we got two conversations with, with people where the word chaos was mentioned when describing their life in the current state. Now, I had many other conversations with people other than those two. The word chaos was not mentioned. Things were going good for them. Do you know what I found as I was thinking back through my weeks so interesting about those two conversations where the word chaos was mentioned? Both of those conversations led to a time of prayer. But all those other conversations where things weren't going great, we didn't stop and pray. Or when things were going great, we didn't stop and pray. And I was just like, you know, how often do we ever think that it could be our chaos that is driving us to our king? Because, I mean, honestly, do you, do, you, do you pray more when things are going great or when you really, really need him to do something? Do we seek God for direction when we already know what to do or when we have no clue? Do we beg for his hand of healing while we're healthy or while we are sick? You see, it's those, it's those chaotic moments that are driving us to our king, which, which means really, honestly, it's our trials that we often view as obstacles to our comfort. And those, those same trials, they're often pathways to the comforter. We want to be comfortable he doesn't want us comfortable because when we're comfortable, we don't need him. And he wants to remind us that everything that we are, everything that we have is all about the king. And so last week, we, we spent 40 days, or we saw that Moses spent 40 days at the top of a mountain and that, that number 40 was about testing. And, and at the bottom of Sinai, the people were being tested. And, but it's something so interesting. I would love to know what goes on at the top of the mountain. I'm guessing most of you know that when Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai, he comes down with two tablets of stone. But do you know that that's not really what goes on at the top of Mount Sinai? Would you be surprised if I told you there are seven chapters beginning in Exodus 25? There are seven straight chapters about what takes place at the top of Mount Sinai, and only the very last verse of chapter 31 talks about Moses being given tablets. Well, wasn't that the whole point? Wasn't he supposed to go up to the mountain to get the, to get the tablets? The very last verse of chapter 31 talks about Moses being given the tablets and coming down, but everything else of those seven chapters focuses on something completely different. So what is going on up there? What is taking place between Moses and Yahweh in Sinai? 
Well, I asked you to join me in verse tw- chapter 24, so that's where we're going to start. We are going to pick up in the very last verse of chapter 24. We, we were here last week, but when we got to this verse, we skipped all these chapters and went straight to chapter 32. Well, we're going to kind of figure out what's going on here in between this time. So let's read the last verse of chapter 24 of Exodus. Verse 18 says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now let's keep reading. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. I read this, and I'm kind of like, this causes me to chuckle. The first thing that Yahweh says to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai is, hey, Moses, go take an offering. Like, hey, that sounds like church. <laughs> like his, the very first words are, I want you to ask the people to contribute. Go, go get an offering. Really? That's the first thing that Yahweh is going to say. Go take an offering. But we have to remember, this is a time of testing, 40 days of testing. And what better way to test the affection of one's heart than through their stuff? How important is it to you? I mean, Jesus is going to say similar things in the New Testament when he says, where your treasure is, that's where you'll find your heart. I, you don't know me, so I'm telling you a little bit of my story. I grew up in a home where my, my mom and dad uh, attended church. I, I, first, first week I could have been, I was in the nursery. My mom and dad taught me to, uh, to tithe 10% of, of my income to the church. It wasn't, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't even talked about. It, wasn't, it was like, this is what you're going to do. Well, when you're 10 years old and you get $10 for your birthday, tithing is pretty easy. You give $1. But when you turn 16 and you start making the big bucks at $3.75 an hour, which was minimum wage at that time, uh, and, and you work all week long and bring home that paycheck of $100, booyah, 100 bucks, I'm rolling in the dough. Hey, now $10, that's a little bit, that's a little bit more. And then as time went on and I grew older and those paychecks were able to grow, like, the size of my tithe began to increase as well. And I remember reaching a point after Jamie and I were married, kind of just like, do we, do we have to give this much? I mean, our family was in a place where we desperately could have used that money, but I came to the realization in my own heart that my hesitancy to give was never about the money. It was always about my own security and my own pleasure. I wanted to keep enough for myself that I never had to worry about the future, which that doesn't show much faith in God. And I also wanted to keep enough so I would find my own pleasure, which like, I think Jesus is the one that wants to be where we find our satisfaction, right? So I realized, like, this is, this is kind of a question that goes to my heart. Like, am I going to trust Jesus to be enough, and I'm, am I going to look at Jesus as enough? Just this past week, I, I, it was so interesting. I had a very similar conversation with my son who got married in December. 
He is a, he's a union electrician, and he's in, the, uh, he's in that apprenticeship stage where uh, as, as the more time he puts in, he's starting to see raises and, and go. And he said, Dad, he was just telling, talking to me, he said, Dad, we, uh, he said he and his wife uh, were having a conversation, and then he said, uh, we, we wrote out our check for the church, and, and the question was, do we have to give this much? I was like, that's so wild, because I remember asking those same questions. And, he, and this, this is what he said. He said, there was some hesitation, Dad, about what we were going we to give. And, and I, I tried to explain to him, and may I explain this to you, you don't ever give to the church. Like, you don't give to Plymouth Community Church. You give to the kingdom through Plymouth Community Church. When, that, when, you're, when your offerings go into the box, that, that doesn't come to, to this church. That goes to his kingdom. Right? But as a body, we're, we're trying to follow that kingdom. We're trying to make, bring that kingdom in a greater way here. But, but my 23-year-old son said, wow, we kind of hesitated. And I told her, I said, I said, well, let's just give and trust God to be enough. I was like, dude, Troy, proud of you, man. He's like, yeah, but dad, that's not the end of the story. I got my paycheck on Friday. They credited me with some bonus hours that I wasn't expecting. And dad, it more than covered what we were going to keep back. Come on, man. That, thank you, Jesus, for being real in the life of my son. Oh, that's what I want. And that's what I want for you. Because this is not about guilting someone into giving more. This is about encouraging each of you to trust God more. I mean, the first thing Yahweh says is, I'm going to test their hearts. It's going to end in a golden calf worship, but it all begins on what are you willing to, what are you wanting to hold back from me? I love the fact that we never give as a means of receiving more from God. Like we don't give to God so we get from God. No, we give as an acknowledgement of having received all. Everything you have is from him. Everything. Yeah, but I, yeah, but you went to work. Who, who gave you breath? Who gave you strength? Who gave you brain? Who gave you the abilities, right? And that's where we just simply say, I, my giving is not about getting. My giving is acknowledging I've already gotten everything from him. So if we were to keep reading in chapter 25, there's this list of items that he's going to ask the people to bring. And then he's going to say why. If you look at verse number 8, chapter 25, verse number 8, this is Yahweh speaking. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is what it's about. The bride and groom are now committed to one another. Where are they going to live? Hmm. Yahweh says, I want to dwell right in the midst of them. And notice this word, exactly. He said, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. So, so from this point on, from this point on, all the way to the end where Moses gets those stone tablets, we have the ultra exciting, never boring, wonderfully joyful instructions on building a tabernacle and all the furniture inside. And we get exactly what Yahweh wanted. Because he wants to meet with his people. He wants to live with his people. 
I think that's so cool. Yahweh calls it a tabernacle. Us as brides and grooms, we say, well, we're going to be living in a home together. I heard Tony Evans, who's an awesome preacher. He's a well-known preacher in Texas. He said, he made the statement once. He said, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And you don't have to go home to be married. But if you stay away for too long, at some point your relationship's going to suffer. That doesn't mean that everyone who walks into church has a good relationship with the Lord because we all know that there are marriages that share the same square footage of the same home and their affections are far from one another. Just because we step into a place like this doesn't mean that our relationship with Yahweh is what it needs to be. And I get, hey, we all go through those seasons of feeling distant. I told uh, Todd this morning when he said, how was your week? And I said, man, I was so excited to come to church today. Like, I don't know, I turned the truck on, pulling out of the driveway, and I like, I literally, I was by myself. People probably, if they would have driven past me, would have thought, who's the crazy man? I was smiling. Like, I was, I'm going to church. I, can't, I cannot wait to be with the people that I love to talk about the Jesus that I love and we get to worship him together. Like, what is, what's better than that? Ah, and I, I get the privilege of sharing. Come on. I was excited about being here. But I've, I've experienced seasons as a pastor. And I, I told our church in Virginia this happened one Sunday. I pulled up to the stop sign. That way is our church, and it was a Sunday morning, and I wanted, everything in me wanted to pull that way and just go home. I was in a, I was a tough season. I didn't want to go. We all have seasons like that. In those seasons, it's good to be faithful, right? It's good to be faithful, but don't stay distant for too long, or those relationships will continue to grow worse. So we're going to try to zip through these, these chapters about the tabernacle, and I'm just going to kind of give you an overview. That's why I asked you to bring your Bible so we could flip through things, and I'm not going to have everything behind me. But I wanted to give you a short overview of what is so cool about the tabernacle. And no, we're not going to spend a lot of time reading the details. You could do that on your own. I'm sure that you'll be excited about that. But please have a cup of coffee with you while you're uh, reading the details of the tabernacle. But I want to share four thoughts with you about the instructions of the tabernacle and how they relate to us today. First, first is this. The creation of the tabernacle points to the creation of the world. Displaying Yahweh's desire to dwell with his people. Now, this may excite some of you if you're like a Bible nerd and you like you love seeing things in the Bible and making connections. For some of you, the next few minutes may be like a classroom setting and you may doze off. I hope you don't because I hope it's exciting, but this is really, really cool. I want you to look at Exodus, Exodus chapter 25, verse number one. Okay. The first couple of words of Exodus chapter 25, verse number one, say, the Lord or Yahweh said to Moses. We're going to stop right there. Okay. Now flip to chapter 30. Flip to chapter 30. And look at verse number 11. Okay? And do you notice, it says, Yahweh said to Moses. Skip down to verse number 17. Yahweh said to Moses. 
Skip down to verse 22. Yahweh said to Moses. You picking up on a pattern here? <laughs> verse 34. Yahweh said to Moses. Chapter 31, verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses. And look at chapter 12. And when we get to, I'm sorry, look, look at verse 12. Chapter 31, verse 12. When we get there, keep your Bible there because we're going to come back to this. Chapter 31, verse 12. And Yahweh said to Moses. Okay, now if you weren't counting... How many times did Yahweh speak? If you were counting, sorry. If you were counting, how many times did Yahweh speak? Seven. If you were to turn, if we're not going to, but if you were to turn to Genesis chapter one, as the world is created, guess how many times Yahweh speaks the creation of the world into existence? Boom. Is this tabernacle is being created through the word of the Lord. Creation was created. The world was created through the word of the Lord. And look, at, look back at chapter 31, verse number 12, right? It says, says, and Yahweh said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, this is chapter 31, verse 12, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Wait, that's the seventh time he's speaking about the creation of the tabernacle. What happened on the seventh day of creation? The Lord rested. Oh, we have Sabbath on the seventh. We have Sabbath on the seventh. This is not a coincidence. I promise you, the tabernacle is meant to be a purposeful point back to creation. Look at chapter 26. Chapter 26. Man, this one, this one will just really excite you if you read it. Moreover, chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains. Oh, my goodness. Curtains. Screens. Let's go hang something. And he tells them exactly how they should be made. But here's the thing. The tabernacle was a series of separations. You had the outer tabernacle from the rest of the world. You had the door that only the Jews could enter. You had the holy place where only the Levites priests could go. And you had the holy of holies where only the high priest could go. Separations, four of them. Ha! Creation. Separate light from darkness air from water, separate day from night, and separate land from water. Separations. A series of separations as the tabernacle is built. A series of separations in creation. Look at chapter 28, verse number 4. Chapter 28, verse number 4. Talking about priestly garments. Man, does that sound exciting or what? These are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker, checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. So the priests in the tabernacle were to serve Yahweh. Do you know what Adam was told to do? To guard and to keep. You serve me. You do what I ask you to do. You guard and you keep. Just as those priests were to guard and to keep the tabernacle, they were meant to keep it a place of holiness just as Yahweh asked them to do. Look at, look at chapter 28, verse number 3. There's one verse up. It says, chapter 28, verse 3 says, And you shall make holy garments. Whoops. No, that's not right. I'm sorry. Look at chapter 31, verse 3. Sorry, chapter 31, verse 3. Chapter 31, verse 3. And I have filled him with the 
Spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. So what Yahweh is telling Moses is there is a man, his name is uh, Bezalel, Bezalel. His name is Bezalel, you'll see in verse 1. I've filled Bezalel with my spirit as he creates the tabernacle. Oh, the spirit of God is present in the creation of the tabernacle? Yes, and guess where else the spirit of God hovered over? The waters at creation. Look at chapter 39. Chapter 39, you got to skip forward. So we're skipping past all of the, the golden calf stuff. The instructions have been given. Now the building is taking place. Chapter 39, the, the, the tabernacle is coming together. And I want you to notice the last words of chapter, of, of verse 1, chapter 39. It says, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Look at verse number five, the end of verse five, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. At the end of verse seven, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. At the end of verse 26, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. At the end of verse 29, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. At the end of verse 31, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Did you keep track? How many times was that? What a surprise. Seven times. Seven times Moses inspects the creation of the tabernacle and said it was done as God had spoken. Guess how many times God inspects his creation at the end of every day and God saw that it was good. Chapter 39, look at verse 43. Verse 43, chapter 39. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as Yahweh had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Tabernacle's complete. Moses blesses the workers, and he blesses the work. And guess what happens in creation? Adam and Eve are created, and Yahweh blesses Adam and Eve, and on the seventh day, and he blesses it all. One more. Chapter 40, verse 34. Chapter 40, verse number 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's a tabernacle, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. The completion, the presence of Yahweh descends on the tabernacle. And at the completion of creation, the presence of Yahweh walks into the garden with the man. Man, I just, we, just, we, just can't get, we just can't get away from the fact that as this tabernacle is being created, it is pointing us to creation. What was the purpose of creation? God wanted to be with man. Did, did it have to? No. Did the world have to be made? No. Did, did man have to be created? No. Yahweh was self-sufficient. He needs nothing else. He wanted to be with his people. Why was the tabernacle created? Was it necessary? No. Yahweh could reign and rule from on high. He wanted to be with his people. And we're going to get, later on, we're going to get to talk about the new tabernacle. But for now, the tabernacle points us to creation. Two, the structure of the tabernacle points to the structure of our lives, displaying the centrality of the covenant with Yahweh. Okay, so go back to chapter 25, if would you. 
Would you join me in chapter 25? We're going to go backwards again. We're going back to the blueprints, the excitement of the blueprints. In chapter 25, look at verse number 10. This is the opening line. He's, he's took nine verses and talked about the offering and this is all the stuff to bring. In verse number 10, now he starts to give the instructions of the building of the tabernacle. And he says, Thou shalt make, they shall make an ark. Hmm. An ark. Yeah, and then they spend a lot of time talking about what that ark's going to look like and how to carry it. And then look at verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now that word testimony is representing the ten, the the tablets of stone, the ten commandments. You're going to put those stone tablets inside of this ark. And then look, skip down with me if you would to verse number 21. Same chapter, verse number 21. He gives more, more, he had given more instruction. Then he says in verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In the ark, you shall put the testimony that I give you. There, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You know, what, what we find now is where those, where that covenant that was made in stone, where that covenant is That is where the glory of God is going to rest, and that is where the voice of God is going to be heard. You say, why are you telling all of this to us, Pastor? What's the big deal? Because we haven't started talking about the tabernacle yet. The first thing Yahweh says is you're going to build a place to contain the covenant. Because the covenant is central, and we're going to build the tabernacle around it. You see, when he, gave, when he gave instructions to Noah about the ark, he said, Noah, make that ark this wide and this, no, sorry, this long and this wide and this high. And now let's go inside and make these inner courts. That's not what we talk, that's not what we find in the covenant, in the, co- in the ark of the covenant, in the tabernacle. We find you start with the central piece of furniture that's going to hold the covenant because that's where my glory is going to rest. That's where my voice is going to be heard and we will build everything else around it. And I'm like, wow, so this is so cool. You understand what that's trying to tell us, that Yahweh cares more about what is on the inside than he does what is on the outside. It's just so strange. Like, you guys are builders. Josh, you're a builder. Do you start with a piece of furniture and build a house around it? No, you, you find the blueprints of a home, and then you find a piece of furniture. You custom make the furniture for the home. That's not what this is. The centrality of the tabernacle where Yahweh was going to meet with his people is the covenant matters. It appears that he's trying to remind us, and we don't do a very good job of this, church, What's on the inside is far more important than what's on the outside. There are segments of Christianity that will put a greater emphasis on how you appear than what's actually going on inside. Now, I want to make something very clear before I say anything. I am a firm believer in modesty because modesty is biblical. So listen to what I say. I'm not trying to say I'm not, I'm not, I am a believer in modesty. But we are fooling ourselves if we think that dressing our kids modestly will result in them living morally. Ain't going to happen. 
I don't care what clothes you put on them. It's not the outside that matters. It's their heart that matters. See, morality is a matter of the heart. And the condition of our heart is determined by how close we are to Jesus. Here, here, you got to know this about the tabernacle. The closer something was to the Ark of the Covenant, the more holy it was. Like that outer court, lots of people could be there. The inner court, only the priests could be there. In the most holy place, only the high priest could be there. It was very exclusive because the closer you get, the more holiness you need. Before the high priest could go in, he had to bathe three times in one day before he could go into that spot. Holiness matters. If you want your kids to dress modestly and live morally, don't just put clothes on them. You teach them that they are the bride of Christ and that he is a lover of their souls. And you lead them to fall in love with Jesus. Hey, I get rules are important at times in our kids' lives, but rules will never affect someone's affection. Never. They will never affect someone's affection. Reading your Bible... That's a good thing, right? Really good thing. But I promise you, if you read your Bible and it is a duty, it's going to struggle to change your heart. If you wake up in the morning, first thing is, I'm going to read my Bible today, and you check that box, and you walk out thinking, I'm a better person because I just did that. God's probably pleased with me because I just did that. You've missed the whole point. It's not about the outside. It's about the heart. We've got to read our Bibles knowing that Jesus is in here and we've got to pull Jesus out because as we pull Jesus out, our hearts, our, our affections of our hearts are changed. Let me, let me show you even in the boring details of the tabernacle. Look at chapter 28, verse number 29. I don't have it behind me, so you've got to look. Chapter 28 and, and verse number 29. Chapter 28 starts out, it talks all about the garments that the priests wear it is so dry, it is so boring, until you, get to chat, until you get to verse 29. So Aaron, the high priest, shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Like, you got to think. So Aaron, the high priest, before he walks into Yahweh, when he walks into Yahweh's presence, he's wearing the names of the sons of Israel on his heart. Ha! Our high priest, Jesus, takes us before the presence of the Father, and our names are on his chest. Oh, man. Can you, can you believe that? We have a high priest who steps in front of the Father, the creator of the world, and says, I'm coming on their behalf. I am going to confess sins that I did not do, but I, they did, and I, I, I'm not going to bring a lamb out of the flock. I will be the lamb. You could take me and you could separate me from you, Father. I'll, I'll hang on that cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I'll do that because these people whose names are on my heart, I want them to know you. Amen. Thank you, 
Jesus. You see how reading the tabernacle instructions can move our hearts if we're looking for the person of Jesus? He carried my sinful name before the Father, and he calls me now, calls us now to carry his name to the world. Don't bear his name in vain. It's part of the covenant because we're his people. He's our God. What a good God. Third, the story of the tabernacle points to the story of salvation, displaying Yahweh's mercy and grace. Okay, we got to step back. Can I have your attention for just a moment? We got to step back. Chapter 25 through chapter 40 contains three things, okay? Chapters 25 through 31 talk about the blueprint. These are just instructions. Then we hit this middle point of chapters 32 through 34. And then... We go back and now chapter 35 through 40, it's all about the building of the tabernacle and then Yahweh's presence comes in. It's, it's a strange like setup and, and I was trying to think of a chiasm here, but like I don't want to go too weird on it, but he, here's, here's, what's, here's what's amazing. God gives the instructions, right? But then the people fail. So Yahweh has this chance. I've told you what I want. You're not going to be my people. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm guessing that there's people who have made blueprints for a house and then found out they didn't have the money for it. Or something went wrong in their life and they were never able to build, right? They had to walk away from the blueprints. Yahweh says, I want to dwell in the midst of my people. They're the covenant people who said, yes, holy Yahweh has said we will do. And just a short time, they're bowing before a golden calf. And he has every right as the holy one of Israel to say, eh, no, I'm out of here. I'm not going to dwell with you people. I'm faithful and you're not faithful. Which means the construction, the building of the tabernacle, it's all put into jeopardy. Why would Yahweh want to dwell with the people who are unfaithful to him? Because remember the whole theme. He says, I delivered you from Egypt so that I could be your God. You will be my people and I will take you to a place that I have prepared for you. Man, that's such good news. He wants to be their God, but it's pretty clear they don't want him to, they don't want to be his people. In fact, we actually see that. It's kind of Yahweh's reaction in chapter 33, verse number three. Sorry. I don't know if I have that up here. No, I don't have it up here. Let me read it. Chapter 33, verse number three. Yeah, there's so much context here that we're skipping. I'm just giving you a quick, quick shot. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Huh. Uh, uh. Now, wait a second. You just said you've delivered us so that you could take us to a place. Yeah, you know what? You can have the place. I'm not going. Oh, man, now we have a problem. Is the place, is the place anything without him? Is heaven heaven without Jesus? Is the promised land then the promised land without the presence of Yahweh? And he says, Psh, you can have the place. My presence not going with you sinful people. And then Moses, and we're not reading it, but Moses intercedes. 
And Moses goes to God and Yahweh says in chapter 33, verse 14, he consents and says, okay, I will go with you. And then if you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 33, verse 15. And you're going to see what, what Moses says. Chapter 33, verse 15. And he, Moses, said to him, Yahweh, he, Moses said to Yahweh, if your presence will not go with me, do not Bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Notice this. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, oh, man, you said you're not going to go, and now you said you're going to go. I'm going to tell you something. If your presence doesn't go, don't you go with us, because what changes us, what makes us distinct from everyone else in the world is your presence. So if your presence isn't going, don't take us. Hey, I just go back to what I said last week. How many people would take heaven, and they don't want Jesus? And it's the whole purpose Heaven is about Jesus. And Moses says, Lord, it's all about you. And, and so I love it because now as soon as Moses says that and Yahweh says, I'm going to go, we immediately get to the building of the tabernacle. So between the blueprint and the building, we find three things. Yahweh's justice against the sin, his Moses' intercession for the people and Yahweh's mercy and grace. We see his mercy and grace because he says, you guys are a bunch of sinful people. I'm a holy God, but I'll still go with you. And as soon as I look at this, I realize that's not the blueprint. That's not the story of Israel. That's my story. He created me to be in relationship with him. But I'm the one searching for every other thing in the world other than him to find my joy and satisfaction. And if it wasn't for the intercession of one, if it wasn't for the intercession of one who said, no, 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 no. Your, they need your presence. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that makes them distinct from the whole rest of creation. Your presence. I can't have my presence with that unholy people. Then remove your presence from me. They need you. Oh, Jesus ushers in the mercy and grace of the Father to a group of people who are just simply unholy. He gives us the beautiful gift of eternal life. And here, hey church, I want you to really grasp this. Eternal life is not living forever. That is not what eternal life is. I know you think, Brian, that doesn't make any sense. That's the exact statement. Eternal, everlasting life, living. Eternal life is not living forever. Jesus says it himself. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, according to Jesus, is a relationship. Not living forever. But see, here's the thing. If you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, and he's going to live forever, you get to live forever. That's eternal life. 
And I got to close. I, 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 I would love to keep going, but I'm closing. Last thing. The failure of the tabernacle points to the fulfillment of Jesus. Displaying our need for a saving king. Because we know what happens as soon as those people move on, get into a promised land, they turn from Yahweh, that the temporary tabernacle becomes a permanent temple. They still turn, that temple's eventually torn down. And the whole idea is, like, what's wrong? It's the people are rebellious in their hearts. They don't need a place to go. They need a person to save them. And Jesus is that person. He is the greater tabernacle. He's the greater temple, and here's why. And I'm going to go fast. You know how he highlighted the word of God spoken seven times at creation and seven times in the building of the tabernacle? Do you know what Jesus is? Jesus is the word. Guess how many times Jesus said, I am in John? Seven. Ah. What? He is the greater temple, right? And he doesn't just bring new creation. He brings new life. And he turns us into new creatures. The angry man becomes kind. The bitter heart comes tender because of Jesus speaking through the word and through his spirit into our life. Now we highlighted how the spirit of God hovered over the waters at creation and filled the workers of the tabernacle. Guess who sends us the spirit today? The spirit's alive today. Because Jesus said, oh, when I go, I'll send my spirit to be with you. We are, we are tabernacle workers filled with the spirit of God today because Jesus came, did that, and then went there, sat on his throne and said, I'm going to send my spirit to you. We get to take part now in new creation. We don't get any credit for it, but we get to take part in new creation as he does his work. We highlighted the seven speeches of creation, just as Jesus said, the seven, uh, the seven I am's. And what's amazing is if you get to Revelation, Jesus speaks seven more times to seven unfaithful churches, but he loves them anyways. And he talks to this unfaithful church, and he loves us anyways. He highlighted how God met Adam in the garden, met Israel in the tabernacle, and in Jesus, God, divinity, and man, humanity, meet in Jesus. And because of Jesus, this human can have the presence of that God in me, and I become the tabernacle. I become the temple, and so do you, where the Spirit of God dwells in you, in your Midst. And last, we highlighted, oh, sorry, highlighted how God gave Adam and the priests a work to do. Adam failed, the priests failed. Jesus comes and says, All that the Father has given to me, I have done. That's what we needed. We needed a priest who would do the work the Father had asked. And Jesus did the work and he sat down at the throne. And now he says, you and I get to work together. We are workers with Jesus. And guess what our work is? The same thing Jesus did. Let's make new disciples. Let's make new followers. 
We don't have the capability of doing that ourselves. We need the Spirit of God in us. But we still are called to do it. So what I want you to leave with today, hey, church family, give Jesus freedom to create new life in you. Give him the freedom. Listen, there's a step of faith that you have been hesitating to take. It might be a conversation. It might be giving like we talked about. It might be something you know, an area of ministry that God is moving on you and you've always been like, ah, Jim, I'm just not ready yet. Hey, hey, hey. Give him the freedom to work in your life brand new. Take that step of faith today. And then, hey, make Jesus central in your life. If you don't read the Bible, read the Bible, but look for Jesus. If you read the Bible, but you don't pray a whole lot, hey, you know what I do? I have at 10 o'clock on my phone every day at 10 o'clock a reminder, and it just says, listen. I'm not, listen, I'm not perfect at it. There are t- plenty of times when I don't, I ignore it, I don't. But when that alarm goes off, it is meant to remind me the Spirit wants to speak. Listen. Make Jesus central to your life. And then when you get the chance, celebrate. Celebrate him and the story he is writing in your life. That that celebration may look like standing and singing with the church congregation. Do it. I don't know. I don't stand up here, but I probably would guess there's some of you out there who your mouths don't move one bit when we sing. Hey, celebrate the story that Jesus is writing in your life. It's a good story. He's a good king. Raise a hand if you feel comfortable. But, but, But open a mouth and sing of his goodness. It may just be telling your wife or your husband or a friend, hey, guess what the Lord did? Kara, thank you. We got to celebrate a part of your story today because you shared what the Lord's doing. Celebrate Jesus and the story he is writing. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, man, please don't leave without knowing him. I'm going to stand down here as we sing in just a moment. And then after we're done singing, I'm going to be at the back door just kind of shaking hands. If at either time you would like someone to talk to you about Jesus, I'd love to. If you want someone to pray with you, I'll be here. I'll pray with you. If you're having a hard time and you just want to come and some some quiet time, you could come up here, pray at the altar. You could pray at your seat. I want you to have the comfort, comfort to be able to just speak to Jesus. Listen to him. Make him central. And let's celebrate our good king. And if he's not your king, please. Don't leave without seeing and hearing about how you can make him king. And it's not about what you do. It's just about what he's done for you. And I'd love to explain that with you.